Good afternoon. Please join me as we stand in reading of God's word in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. This is what the Lord says. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So then they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing the word of God for the people of God. Well, Storehouse family, I hope that you are doing well and welcome to the season of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word arrival, and in this season, we focus specifically on the arrival of King Jesus through the virgin birth. I'm really excited for this season for our church, uh, and one of those reasons is because you get to be visited by several guest preachers this season. They are going to lead you through the preaching of God's Word, and I couldn't be more excited to see them, to sit under their teaching but also to hear more about them from you. And so to that effect, this Sunday, today, uh, you are joined by Tony Garcia. Tony serves as one of our community group leaders here at Storehouse McAllen. He has served in a variety of other capacities. And so I'm really stoked to hear him preach on the opening sermon for our Advent season. Please welcome Tony Garcia. All right, good afternoon, Storehouse. Once more, like Marco mentioned, my name is Tony. It is a grand pleasure to be here with you guys this afternoon sharing God's word. I was given the honor and the privilege to uh, open up our season of Advent, like Marco mentioned, um, and in terms of how we prepare ourselves and how we go about this time of the year in remembrance of Jesus' first arrival. And so, uh, like Marco mentioned, my name is Tony. Welcome to Storehouse. If you are new here or if you're visiting for the first time, second time, um, we have Bibles there on your pews. If you don't have a Bible, please go ahead and take one. That is our gift to you. Or if you know anybody who may benefit from the Word of God, please go ahead and take it and give it to them. It is our gift uh, to you. Also with that, if you guys are looking to get plugged in or if you guys have questions or just want information regarding Storehouse, we also have connect cards there on the pews that you guys can go ahead and fill out with your information. And at the end of the service, you can go ahead and turn that in at the back by the connect desk and we'll have somebody reach out to you guys. Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and read our text for today like our brother Alan went ahead and read. We're going to be in John chapter 1 verses 19 to 28. I was given the tall task to go through this uh, introduction of a series in uh, Advent titled From Silence to the Sun. And so I'm going to read our text today. 
I'll go ahead and pray for us, and we'll go ahead and jump right in. So this is what the word of God says. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord, for it is, it is the revealing of your will and ultimately of, a, of your plan for salvation and redemption of your people, Lord. We thank you because we have the honor to be able to gather here, Lord, uninterrupted in a way that we get to sit underneath your word, Lord, to hear you speak, Lord. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, that you illuminate our minds to be able to grow not only simply in the knowledge of you, God, but in a way that leads us to a greater devotion and worship of you, the true and living God. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here today, Lord. I pray that you bless this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're kicking off our sermon series in Advent, all right? And like Marco mentioned, I'm not going to go ahead and elaborate anymore. I'm so grateful that he did that for you, which was, what is Advent, right? And in simple terms, the word is the arrival of or the coming of in this case. And we're talking about specifically the first arrival and the first coming of Christ. So this season is normally known as the holidays, right? Socially uh, speaking and culturally is like all leads up to what? The birth of Christ, and that is Christmas, And so, however, something that we don't, like, I guess, fail to recognize during this season is that we normally like to term it as a season of giving, right? But it's become more of a season of getting. We tend to already have these expectations of the fact that we can expect, whether it be our spouse, whether it be our parents, our siblings, our friends, whoever, to get something. And it's turned into a season of getting, And we've lost sight of what this season really is about. And that is the fact that God obviously gave us a gift. We didn't didn't have to get this gift. God decided to give us this gift. And today we're going to go into and we're going to jump into John being the... the precursor to this gift, which is Christ. But before we do that, I want to share with you guys just uh, a film that I dearly enjoyed during this time, and that is the 1983 film, A Christmas Story. And, right, and if you haven't seen this movie, I encourage you to see it. It's the best time to see it right now because they're probably showing it all over uh, TV. And so this story is based upon this kid, right, named Ralphie, and he's a nine-year-old little boy who works endlessly to try and get his desired gift of a Red Ryder BB gun. Right? And so he does everything that a kid would do to try and make this happen. And normally during this time, right, we either behave like the whole idea of, of Santa Claus in terms of, you know, getting, making the, night, the naughty list or the nice list is like, all right, to, to promise to get you what you want if you're able to do something. And so what he first does is obviously he tries to convince his parents by placing these ads of the gift, 
just to get a response from his mother saying, no, Ralphie, you'll shoot your eye out. And so with his parents out of the way, he's like, all right, on to the next one. He then goes and gets an assignment from his teacher, right? His school teacher uh, assigns them this writing task to go ahead and write about what it is that they would want for Christmas. And so he thinks in his mind, I'm going to write this crazy elaborate story as to why I should get this Red Rider BB gun. And he was so, he turns that into that assignment with all the confidence in the world that his teacher would be convinced that Ralphie should get this Red Rider BB gun. So not only after the, she turns back their papers, it's so anticipant and expectant to receive something, what he ends up getting is a C on the paper and a big, hey, you'll shoot your eye out, so there's no need for you to get that. And so disappointed once more, the last opportunity comes, and that is, his parents take him to the mall to go visit the Santa Claus, right? And now, surely, he's like, man, this is Santa. He will sure hear me. He, he's going to give me what it is that I want, and he's going to promise to get me the Red Rider BB gun. Well, after waiting long in line with his little brother, he shows up there, almost a loss of words, and right before Santa pushes him off the slide, he's able to utter the words, what it is that he wanted for Christmas, and that is a Red Rider BB gun. And with a big smile on his face, waiting for Santa to say, of course, he then gets, you shoot your eye out, kid. And with the biggest disappointment, Santa pushes him off the slide, and all hope is lost from Ralphie in him getting this gift. Christmas gets here, right? Him and his little brother open up all the gifts, and then after that, what ends up happening? His dad says, hey, is that a gift at the back of the Christmas tree? And he goes and he looks and he investigates, and guess what? To his surprise... It was the Red Rider BB gun. So having done nothing to be able to get this gift, he yet received it, not because of his efforts or his ability to convince those around him, but because of his parents' love for him. In the same way, Ralphie approached this season as an opportunity to bring about some promise of something good or desirable, we tend to view our relationship with God in the same way. Promises, however, fell we fail to recognize that it is God who gives them, and it is on our efforts to determine them. And so in the same way, this is our main idea for today, church. The arrival of Jesus is evidence that the promise of God hinges on his faithfulness and not ours. Once more, the arrival of Jesus is evidence that the promises of God hinge on his faithfulness and not ours. So jumping into our text today, just to give you some background in terms of who John the Baptist is. So obviously this is the Gospel of John. We're going to be using these two names, the Apostle John and John the Baptist, right? They're two different characters, two different individuals. And so here John, in the Gospel of John, John is trying to make an emphasis as to who Jesus was, particularly to his divinity. And right when we see, obviously, for the first chapter, John goes and writes an elaborate word inspired by the spirit of the divinity of Jesus to then just in verse 19 abruptly come into this witness or this testimony of John the Baptist. So who is John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was someone who was, it was a child in this case, he, he, he's a prophecy fulfilled and his birth was as miraculous as well, not as Jesus is obviously, but was miraculous because his parents were unable to conceive, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And so he had elderly parents, and it was the angel Gabriel who announced to Zachariah that he would bear a child. And in this case, this child was to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
John was related to Jesus, given that Elizabeth and Mary were both relatives or cousins. And his public ministry ended, like we just ended last week, our series on Malachi. His public ministry, when he came onto the scene, his ministry is what ended a nearly 400 years of silence, a prophetic silence in this particular case. So John was legitimately the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so he was the one that broke God's silence during that 400 years after Malachi. And so in this way, we see that John, the Apostle John, introduced uh, the John the Baptist in the earlier verses of chapter 1, particularly in uh, uh, verse 6. And it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, about, uh, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so our first point is this, church. The promise proclaimed, right? So we were promised. God had promised Israel a savior, a messiah. And here we see the fulfillment of that promise. But before the promise was to arrive and be known to Israel, it was being proclaimed and prepared by this individual John the Baptist. So let us read verses 19 to 21, and it says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So we see after being introduced by the Apostle John, we see John the Baptist's testimony. What does this mean? This part right here is historical because this is John the Baptist's literal witness about who Jesus was in terms of his life, his person, and his ministry here on earth. For time's sake, John the Baptist was not simply a messenger, y'all. But he was the messenger in whom God would use to bring about the indication of, of the world, in this particular case, Israel's Messiah, but the world's Savior, that being Jesus. So John the Baptist had a pretty heavy task ahead of him, and so he wasn't just any other me messenger or prophet. He was the one that would give us the indication of the Messiah. So at this point in his ministry, he had grown highly respected by the people and in the regions of Israel, right? A lot of people regarded him as a prophet. But at the very same time, there was others who did not, particularly the religious leaders, uh, as we will see right now. But just to, just to give some reference, in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, we see the background of John the Baptist. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. It is pretty awesome. Uh, and so I'm going to just read verse 76, and this is what it says. And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He had grown notorious for his unorthodox preaching, lifestyle, and appearance, and was regarded by some of the religious leaders as a threat. So John the Baptist wasn't your typical individual who was carrying the oracles of God in regards to how the religious leaders imagined this person to be. So just imagine, this is the way the Bible describes John. A garment of camel's hair. He wore a, car a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts, grasshoppers, and wild honey. And was preaching and proclaiming to you the need to confess your sins 
and repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is at hand. So this hippie-looking guy was standing here preaching to the normal people, right? It's like just imagine some crazy guy out in the middle of the corner of the street who looks homeless, skinny, malnourished, and was telling you, repent, repent. The first thing that you would say was, man, I don't know about that, you know? And the religious leaders were just as uh, skeptical about him as we would be seeing somebody of his, uh, of his appearance in our day and age today. But yet he was the one in whom God used to prepare the way for the Lord. So just imagine a group of super religious, self-righteous, legalistic, self-sufficient leaders would react to this type of ministry. How do you think they would think? Having this hippie-looking guy preach to them, these well-dressed, well-maintained, well-kept individuals who were to be the ones who knew everything about God to tell you, you need to be baptized and repent from your sin. He's like, man, you got the wrong guys here, man. You're the one who needs to repent. But that tells us the fact that God does not look at the outward parts of who it is that should or should not repent. And so in this particular case, these people, these Jews, were looking at John and they were questioning him. And so what do they do? They go out and they sent Levites and priests to go check them. So Zechariah was a priest from the tribe of Levites, right? And, um, and so John the Baptist was a Levi as well. And so they sent out these priests and Levites to go and question him because he thought it to be appropriate. And in doing so, they would hope to conspire against him in terms of saying, man, we're going to catch this guy. This guy has to be a false prophet. Or if he's, gonna, if he's really going to be the guy, then, then he's going to confess it. And if he's not, then, we're, we're, then we have every reason to question what it is that he is doing. So what happens? Again, these religious leaders also knew, guys. Something that we needed to know is that the religious leaders at this time were also anticipating the Messiah and the coming and the arrival of Jesus. It has been 400 years. They were waiting. They were just as anticipant about this Messiah. However, during this time, obviously, they had a perspective of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And that was this political figure who would come in power and be able to overthrow the Roman Empire. Right? And so that is who they thought was. The, the Messiah. And so if that was going to be the Messiah, the messenger to the Messiah must be of some great caliber. Not this guy who, uh, who eats grasshoppers and eats honey. Like, so they went and he sent them. But these leaders, you know, who were supposed to know all things pertaining to God, were causing themselves to be questioned because if this was really the messenger of the Messiah and they didn't know, they looked bad. They weren't convinced by who John the Baptist was. They weren't convinced, and because they weren't convinced by who John the Baptist was, they disregarded what he was proclaiming. Let's just say he did not fit the picture of what it is that they would imagine the messenger of the Messiah to be. But if we're honest, church, are we not sometimes the same? Do we not, are we any different when it comes to viewing the promises of God and how it is that we perceive them to be? Or do you question something that God has done because it does not fit the ideal belief of what it is that it's supposed to look like? These religious leaders, knowing the law, knowing the Torah, knowing the Old Testament, could not see that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of such testimony. So just like we would ask direct questions from God in order that we would get direct answers to his promises, which would keep us from exercising any faith in actually believing God's promises, these religious leaders do the same, right? They go on and they ask John the Baptist 
three specific key figures who were supposed to be the indication of the Messiah. And they asked him, are you, he, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So in this particular case, obviously, he first asked him, well, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Because you're doing these things, you're saying these things, are you the one? And he says, I confess, I do not deny, but I confess, I promise you, this is not me, it's not about me. And he asked him, well, then are you Elijah? And if you go to Malachi chapter 3, you see, or in Malachi chapter 4, at the end of it, we see that Elijah is prophesied uh, as the one who would come to make the way and prepare the hearts of the people before the arrival of the Messiah. And he says no. And then he asks, are you the prophet? And this prophet is somebody who was prophesied in, by Moses uh, in Deuteronomy that would come as the indicator of the Messiah. And he says, no, I'm not those. And so they're like, all right, so you're none of the guys who are actually going to make us believe that you're the, 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 the messenger or that the Messiah is here. Then what's the deal, right? But John's response should show us something, and that is that he was not interested or was looking to convince anybody of the promises of God or who he was. He wasn't there trying to tell you, oh, this is who I am so that you can believe. I am Elijah. Oh, I am, I am a prophet. This is the Christ. No, no, no. John did not care whether or not you believed who he was or whether or not you believed what he was saying. Even though these titles of Elijah and being a prophet could have been declared by John, he didn't because he knew who he was was not as important as who was coming. And to reference, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 to 10. This is what Jesus says of John the Baptist. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he in whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. These religious leaders wanted John to validate himself by asking him if he was any of these three figures. So that, not so that they can actually go and do anything, but so that they can validate their reasons to believe in God and the promises that God had already set that he was going to fulfill. Are we ever so different in asking God to basically validate himself in order that we may validate our reasons to believing? But faith doesn't work that way. And neither do the promises of God. God doesn't, God's promises don't hinge or don't depend on whether or not you believe them. Because God's promises aren't produced by us. They're proclaimed by us. John the Baptist knew this very well. He knew that God's promises of a savior didn't ride on whether or not people believed him or whether or not people thought he, that he was Elijah or a prophet. But he proclaimed and prepared the way of the Lord because he had arrived. John the Baptist knew that God had fulfilled his promise and it is why he was proclaiming and preparing the way. He wasn't trying to do this in order so that the promises of God may come. Church, are we concerned about producing God's promises in our lives? The fact is that sometimes we do things, whether it's to justify the reasons for why God's promises will be kept or to 
justify the reason as to why we think God's promises won't be kept for us. As if we are the determinate factor of whether or not that promise actually will come about. John the Baptist shows us that at the end of the day, these religious leaders wanted not the promises of God. They wanted the benefits of being, of getting what they wanted, not in terms of proclaiming who God was. And the reality is that they knew the law. They were teachers. They were well-versed, just like a lot of people in the church, and even some Christians are well-versed. Yet, we can be standing here and proclaiming, but are we preparing? We can say that Jesus came. We can proclaim that Jesus saves, but what does our life reflect that? John was the example, in this case, we'll see in our next point about the fact is, does your proclamation reflect your preparation? Because these Jews, these, these religious Jewish leaders, in order for them to prepare, in order for them to be prepared or to prepare themselves, they first needed to make sure that what he was saying was true. Not John, whether or not God was true. That's what we do. We only prepare unless we are convinced that God is being true, rather than preparing because we know that God is to be true. Why prepare for a promise if we don't even know or we even believe that it, the promise is actually going to be fulfilled? And so that brings us to our second point, the promise prepared. Let's continue reading. Verse 22, and it says, So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had, sent, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So after John goes on to say and state that he is none of these three figures that they had asked him if he was, they go back and they're like, all right, man, we're going to ask you again. Who are you? All right? You're none of the main three figures that indicate that the Messiah is here, then who are you? And they go on to even say, like, like what do you say about yourself? What's your resume? I can just picture these, 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 these leaders being like, dude, like, just tell us who you are, man. We have people waiting for us already like, to, to go and give them an answer. So can, can you just like, give this, you're giving us a bunch of indirects here. Like, can you just tell us who you are? And, uh, and I'm pretty sure they're waiting. If, in addition to telling, who, telling them who you are, they're waiting. It's like, all right, well, prove it. What, what do you say about yourself? What have you done? These individuals asking these questions was more for their benefit rather than for their actual preparation. They weren't, they weren't concerned. They were more concerned about what it would say about them than what it is that was actually being said of them. But in typical John the Baptist style, he doesn't exalt himself when he's asked this question, right? He goes on and he goes and quotes scripture, particularly Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 3, but I'm going to read us verse 41 to 3 so we can get some context to this, uh, this very well-known uh, prophecy. And it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your, Lord, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I want us to see something here because it tells us about the preparation. John the Baptist, which the last portion, verse 3, is pertaining to, which is a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way, is 
comes after what God has accomplished and what God has promised. And that is to say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her and tell her that her welfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is Christ. Christ accomplished that. Christ did that. John was just preparing for that which was already promised and was to be given. He wasn't trying to prepare in order for that to come. He was preparing because that is what had come. Here Isaiah is prophesying about the redemption that Israel was to receive. And that was to come through Jesus. And that the arrival of such a great redemption, there would be one who would prepare the people of Israel to receive such a blessing. The presence of him who is the embodiment of mercy, of grace, and of truth. God goes and and speaks and says, speak tenderly. Jesus came and arrived and spoke tenderly. He wasn't this political figure of power and authority, although he is God, although he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He came and he spoke tenderly, offering his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. This is how the Lord was to approach us in saving us. We see God's heart in salvation. John the Baptist was directly giving them the answer they so inquired. He literally told them, like, if you, if you really know the prophecy, if you really know the truths and the promises of God, you would see that I am nothing but the, 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 the forerunner to what was promised to you. That is your redemption, your salvation. So he gave them their answer, but they, that wasn't the answer they wanted. That wasn't the answer they were looking for. John is literally saying, dude, forget who I am. Like you're, ma- like, you're losing it here. Like, what I'm doing should give you all the answers that you need to know, and that is that the king is here. And I'm literally trying to prepare you for that. And it's funny because we assume that when it comes to the promises of God, we don't need preparation, that we can receive them without ever making them about ourselves. However, we see the example of this misconstrued way of thinking and that when the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness as a formal preparation, not because the promise wasn't theirs, but because their pride in their sin kept them from entering it. Do you think it would be any different in terms of when it came to preparing for the arrival of the son who was to save Israel. And this is what John the Baptist was doing. He wasn't trying to bring about the promise of God. He was preparing the people to receive that promise. And how did he do that? Well, through the ministry of repentance and baptism, which would serve as a shadow of the salvation, of what salvation would look like in Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see here, a uh, Matthew describing uh, John the Baptist's ministry. And so it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
So how was John the Baptist trying to prepare the people of Israel and how we are, are, are being prepared as well as for the second coming of Christ? It was through repentance. What is repentance? And although this can be a very in-depth answer, which it is, I promise you, it really is. There's a lot of things, but we're not going to go there. I don't have that time. Um, uh, it is simply, it is, the, it is the command, repentance is the command to confess your sin before God and to turn away from such sins and turn to God for the forgiveness of those sins and obedience to his will and not ours. We can put it this way. Confessing is a declaration of admission of sinning against the living God. And repentance is the outward demonstration of having turned our lives away from those sins of our confessions to God. Church, we would do well to recognize that everyone here falls short of the glory of God. We haven't fallen short of the glory of God. We it's not only that we will fall short of the glory, it's that we do fall short of the glory of God. We think that at some point we don't. And these, these religious leaders at some point have mistaken to think that they had never, that they had not fallen short of the glory of God. That they would be an exception to, the, to their need for redemption and repentance. Why? Because repentance was associated with shame. You were guilty. And though that was the case, this is not the way in which God intended it to be. Repentance is not shame-driven. It is grace-driven. God knows our weakness. It is why he had to come. And we, church, would do well to prepare in such a way that we repent, not just today, but yesterday and tomorrow and until Christ comes. For it keeps us from thinking that we, will, that we aren't ever in need of his grace and his mercy. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord in this act of grace for the people of Israel. This was an act of grace by God to them. And like we learned last week, in the closing of Malachi, those who would see the redemption of the Lord would be the ones humbling themselves before God and repenting from their sin. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Israel, just like ourselves, would and could never be the source of our right standing before God. And John the Baptist was preparing them to recognize that their confession and their repentance is nothing but an indication of what it is that they're going to need to be able to come out of that. That they may be able to receive the light of the sun who is the life of the world. And in addition, he was baptizing, right? And in this baptism, obviously, John the Baptist, he was just, it was just, he was doing this as a demonstration of their repentance, an outward public demonstration of their repentance. And this would also symbolize and foreshadow the baptism that it is that we were to receive through faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. John's preparation demonstrated that he truly did believe what he was proclaiming regarding the arrival of the promised son. He was doing everything. He had not seen the son yet. Christ hasn't come yet. Christ hadn't been revealed. He re he's revealed in the later text uh, uh, in 29. But he hadn't seen, and he was already doing this. 
Not because he thought that, oh, he might come. No, because he knew that he was to come, that he is here. And he's arriving, and we need to go, and we need to do this. He wasn't second-guessing God. No, no, his preparation demonstrated that what he was proclaiming, he believed. However, after John gives his response for who he is and what he says of himself, these priests and Levites are very confused because they're like, all right, uh, from what authority are you doing this? If you are not Christ, they go and they ask him, they say, then why are you baptizing if you're not neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? You see, John, uh, ba- you see, John baptizing in this time is what the Jews did with those who were converts to Judaism in preparation for Messiah's coming. They didn't baptize Jews because they believed that the Jews were already considered a part of God's kingdom. So they come and question John, and they're wondering why he's baptizing Jews. So their thinking was like this. Why would you baptize Jews, John, if they don't need to be baptized? They're already in the kingdom. Their perception was the fact that because we are children of Abraham, we have been granted already the, uh, the kingdom of God. It is on the basis of the name of Abraham and why it is that we are worthy to enter into the kingdom and not in need of this baptism, of this repentance, of this confession that you say. The point is this, and that is that these two things, repentance and the baptism, were a means of grace from God by which the people of Israel would prepare their hearts and their minds to receive the arrival of him who was promised to them. In the end, Ralphie gets the BB gun and goes out, and with such excitement, he goes out and he sees it and he shoots something. And guess what happens? He shoots his eye. It's so crazy, right? If it wasn't for his glasses, he literally would have shot his eye out. He was so busy fantasizing and imagining all sorts of scenarios of him using the BB gun, whether it's uh, the robbers or whether it's saving his parents, whatever it is that he imagined, that he never really prepared or learned how to use one. Our lack of preparation speaks and shows to how we think that promise hinges on us rather than on the one in whom it was promised by. Likewise, John goes on to answer their question once more. To let them know that this preparation does not determine the promise, but that our preparation speaks to our faith in his promise. Which brings us to our last point. The arrival of the promise. Verse 26 to 28, and it says, So John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John goes on to answer them once more, and he, and he is not at this point, and he's telling them, at this point, man, I'm not the object. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even the, 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 the reason for any of this. The king is, he says, I baptize you with water. He's like, dude, I baptize you in mere plain old water. Trust me, there's nothing special about it. There's nothing salvific. There's nothing about this baptism that's going to change you. However, among you stands here right now someone who you do not know. John lets them know that although his baptism does not save him, the one who called him to prepare the Jews through this baptism and through this call of repentance was standing in their midst. 
This is the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Son, the King who stood in their presence and they didn't even know it. John is like, dude, all this that I'm doing is literally just to tell you that he's here. And yet here you are asking me about who I am. Church, we don't have to work for God's promises in order for them to come about. We don't even have to profess them or to profess to know everything about them in order to have faith in them. Despite this world and all its ugliness and all its evil and all its darkness, the one who promised to save it kept it by coming into it. These religious leaders thinking that, the, that as the people of Abraham, they would be entitled to the promise of salvation and God, uh, of God because of it, could not even see that the very promised salvation was in front of them. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John goes on to say, he is here. And I am not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. This cultural reference was so that the listeners may understand the implications of the one standing among them. This implied to unstrap the sandal of another man implied to be of the lowliest of lowliest of statuses. Not even rabbis with students and disciples would be deemed just in requiring their, their students to untie their straps or their sandals. And yet, this very act, John is saying, I, I am beyond, like not even the lowliest of lowliest of service that I could offer the king am I even worthy to do. Why would John say this? Because it's never been about him. He doesn't care about whether or not he's deemed worthy by anybody else. No, no. This whole thing, this whole ministry, this whole baptism, this whole call, this proclaiming of repentance was done for one and one thing. That is to point to the one who is, who was, and is to come. And that is King Jesus. Even after Jesus was revealed through the baptism, there was still some of John's disciples that were like, hey, teacher, teacher, this Jesus guy is like really getting a lot of attention. He's like, are you serious right now? Like after, so, after everything I've told you, after everything I've said, you, st like, you still don't get it. It was never about me. This church, this is the one in whom is called Emmanuel, God with us. John could only proclaim and prepare the way for the promise that he knew God had kept and would keep. We too would do well in proclaiming that King Jesus has arrived and that he has come to give life to all those who believe in his name. That the son of God, the promised one, the savior did not come to condemn the world but to save it. That those who turn and repent from their sin and put their faith in him for their salvation will be saved. Jesus' first arrival is evidence that God's promises hinge on him and not us. Whether or not we proclaim, whether or not you will prepare, will not hinder or alter God's promises of redemption and salvation. However, if we truly say we have believed, 
This ought to lead us to prepare for the promise he made to us. And that is that he will return again. One last time to bring his bride, the church, into glory. So church, to wrap it up here. If you, Christian, have been trying to rest in your ability to bring about God's promises or have created this idea or image of what God's promises for you ought to look like, I plead with you, repent. There is nothing about God's faithfulness and his promises to redeem you, to sanctify you, to love you, to sustain you, to preserve you, to keep you that hinges on you. It is not about confessing your failures or your inabilities, for God knows that. It's why he sent his son. It's about us confessing our lack of believing and trusting in who he is. And if you're not a Christian, first I just want to say thank you for being here. Honestly, it, it, is, a, it is a great pleasure to have you here, to be able to sit here and to hear what is you know, being said. But like we discussed, God is a God who is faithful and who keeps his promises. And whether or not you believe them or proclaim them, God will return. Because that is what he promised. However, he will return not as the lamb and not as the one sacrificed for your sins, but as the one who is to judge the world, both the living and the dead. And he will, and he did promise that he will bring all to end both sin and death. And we, everybody outside of Christ, has sinned and is dead in that sin. So I ask you, the amazing news is that God, for both the non-Christian and the Christian, is that God first promised to save and to make a way for our salvation. And that is by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who arrived over 2,000 years ago, who walked on this earth and lived the life that you and I could not live and died the death that you and I did not deserve. And the third day, God rose him from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was, the son of God, the redeemer, the promised savior of the world. And that promise is for both the believing and the one who is called to believe. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you because you are faithful, Lord. We thank you because through the testimony of John the Baptist, Lord, we see that you have been faithful to your people. That your promise of sending one who would save, save us from our sin did not hinge on our faithfulness. Not, did not depend on whether or not we prepared or proclaimed whether or not we even believe, Lord, but the fact that you are faithful and that you are true. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Christ, for coming and saving us and keeping your promise. And we look in hope of your return to bring us to you in glory, Lord.